Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks very much for tuning in. Before we get started today, I want to thank everybody who showed up at the Ann Arbor Public Library in downtown Ann Arbor last night for the continuation of our WDET book club, where we're discussing the book What the Eyes Don't See by Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha, which is about the Flint water crisis, how it happened, what the consequences were, and where we are now. We had a really interesting conversation with Lindsay Smith of Michigan Radio, one of the reporters who did critical, critical work uh, exposing what was going on in Flint with the water. Uh, also, we were joined by State Senator Jeff Irwin, who represents uh, that district in Ann Arbor. Uh, we talked about the work that he is doing on PFAS, which is a new threat to clean drinking water, not just in Ann Arbor, but all around the state, uh, but also some of the other infrastructure projects that he is working on. So it was a really great conversation. Uh, we want to thank everybody who showed up for that and also remind you that we have two more book club events, one August 22nd at the Ferndale Public Library in downtown Ferndale. Uh, and then September 10th, we will have our finale event at the Detroit Public Library. You can join us for either of those, or you can go to Facebook and join the WDET Book Club, where there is a pretty robust conversation going on about water quality and environmentalism. Uh, there's uh, always the opportunity to do that there. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today uh, and talk about these things as well. Uh, again, thanks to everybody who showed up last night. Okay, let's get to the topic of the day today. Over the weekend, in the span of about 13 hours, a total of 29 people were killed in two different American cities. The first incident was Saturday at an El Paso shopping center, believed to be carried out by a 21-year-old man who is the likely author of an anti-immigrant manifesto that he posted online before the attack. And then early Sunday morning, the next incident came. It was in Dayton, Ohio, in a popular entertainment district. And that was carried out by a 24-year-old who managed to kill nine people and injure 27 more in just 30 seconds. I'm going to say that again. He killed nine people and injured 27 more in just 30 seconds. The worst part is that these are only the most recent killings, of course. There were two more earlier last week, and there have been many, many more this year. So who's to blame for this spate of mass killings? And what can be done to stop them from happening or even slow the pace at which they're happening? And for how much longer are we going to continue on this cycle until real change is implemented to prevent this epidemic of mass murders. That is what we want to discuss today on the program. And we really want to hear from you about what you're feeling after what happened this weekend. Do you feel safe going out and just living your life in the wake of all these mass shootings? Think about where these things happened over the weekend. One at a shopping center at a Walmart, uh, a place where people were probably doing back-to-school shopping. Uh, somebody shows up with a gun and kills a lot of people. The other at an entertainment district. People out for the evening having a good time, and someone shows up and kills nine people and injures 27 others in just 30 seconds. Are you somebody who is now thinking about why and where you go a little differently because of mass shootings? Uh, also, do you think there's any hope in this country that we will ever do something 
to stop or at least slow the number of mass shootings that we are witnessing. Uh, what is the answer in your mind? Is it about guns and gun control, as some people are saying? Is it, as the president said yesterday, about uh, violent video games and uh, other kinds of uh, influences that uh, he says are causing people to do this? And we want to talk specifically about what the president said yesterday uh, about white nationalism. First time, really, he's addressed that in any way. But, of course, he addressed it without addressing the role that he's played in stoking that kind of feeling in uh, American citizens, the real raw manipulation of racism and race that he indulges every day. It was very strange, of course, to watch him talk about these things without acknowledging his own role in all of this. So call and tell us what you think. Tell us what you think about what's going on. Tell us what you think should happen, uh, what we should be doing to make this better. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. As always, you can also go to the WDET Facebook page, Put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, before we get to callers, though, I've got two guests who have real insight into this issue. Andy Arena is the executive director of the Detroit Crime Commission and a longtime former FBI special agent in charge for the Detroit Division. Andy, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, Stephen. Uh, also with us is Austin Serrett. He is the Associate Provost and William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Jurisprudence and Political Science at Amherst College, and he's an editor of The Lives of Guns. Austin Serrett, welcome to Detroit Today. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah. So, Andy, you and I have talked about this issue before. Uh, uh, I want to get your quick reaction to the kind of violence that we're seeing in the news recently and what seems to be an acceleration of the pace of these incidents happening. Uh, what's going on from your perspective? Well, Stephen, it, it seems like you and I talk about this uh, about three or four times a year, right? Yes. Uh, it seems that you have me on. We, we have the same conversation. And, you know, unfortunately, as a country, we continue uh, to not have this conversation. Um, it, nothing's going to change in my mind until we sit down and have a, a, a real adult discussion, open discussion, and everything's on the table. You know, it's, it's you know, obviously a different, uh, a different time of the year because it's the political season and, and certainly that heightens or uh, uh, negates the, the conversation to a certain extent. But, you know, it's, it's about guns. It's about the types of guns. It's about ammunition. It's about extended magazines. It's about mental health. It's about the First Amendment. You know, is is our concept of free speech uh, changing because of technology and because of the world we live in? Um, you know, all of those things have got to be discussed and have got to be discussed, discussed as adults. Otherwise, we're, we're just not going to ever see a change in this country, and that's, and that's just unfortunate. So, so one of the things that uh, really strikes me as uh, notable here is that Everybody has a reason that they think this is happening, and everybody has a reason that they think this is not happening. In other words, uh, if you think it's guns, then often you don't talk about the other things that may be influencing these things. And, of course, uh, the president talked uh, about other things and kind of de-emphasized the idea of, of gun control. I mean, it, it does seem as though it really uh, matters 
which side of the street, I guess, the, you line up on here. And that's probably the explanation for why we can't have that conversation that you're talking about. Well, yes, yeah, Stephen. I think it's it's just the, the the world we live in today is is we we cling to our ideas. Uh, I'm right, you're wrong. If you don't agree with me, there's something wrong with you. Um, we we don't we don't have the, the the discourse. We don't have the discussion that we used to have. And so, you know, if I if I believe in the and if you know, I'm, I'm a law school professor, and, and this is what I talk to my students about. You know, the Constitution was written at a time when we had twenty thousand. British troops across the Detroit River waiting to uh, to invade us, and we needed a, a very strong militia. So, you know, people who hang to the Second Amendment to every word of the Second Amendment, um, you know, the world has changed. It's the same thing with the First Amendment. You know, obviously in this country you can say just about anything that you want, but obviously you can't yell fire in a theater, right? Well, is what we're seeing uh, tantamount to yelling fire in a theater? Are you going to get... Do you know that you're going to get the reaction out of people that, that you're starting to get with domestic terrorists and white supremacists uh, uh, at all? So, you know, until we can sit down, Stephen, and have uh, a, a, this adult discussion in this country, uh, we're, we're doomed to, to you and I talking about this three or four times a year, unfortunately. Uh, Austin Serrett, uh, you wrote a piece in Politico, uh, and you know that there have been seven attacks that are sort of comparable in 2019. Talk about the similarities you're seeing in these attacks. Well, before I do, I want to just take a little issue um, with the contention that we uh, we can't talk about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree that at the national level and in the glare of the spotlight, our conversations are quite polarized and quite rare. And indeed, part of the difficulty that we're in is that gun owners and people who are not gun owners live in really separate worlds. But I think there are possibilities, there are avenues for change that are available at the grassroots level, outside of the spotlight, of political campaigns and political rhetoric. After all, to take a not exactly comparable example, think about where the nation was several years ago on the subject of gay marriage. Hmm. Uh, It it was a very divisive uh, subject. Um, Today, it is much less so, and that is because people who live next door to gay couples understand that Uh, Gay marriage is not a threat to their way of life. So I think the conversations that need to occur need to occur at the grassroots level. And there's lots, actually, that gun owners and uh, advocates for gun reform have in common. Uh, Surveys have shown that about 75% of gun gun owners favor background checks for the private sales of weapons, and close to 50% favor a ban on assault weapons, and slightly less favor a ban on high-capacity magazines. So there there are avenues, I think, of uh, possibility for finding places of agreement. And and I'd like to cultivate those uh, avenues and and not abandon the possibility simply because at the political level and at the national level things are so polarized. Mm. Um, uh, can you talk more about uh, the different ways in which you see us uh, talking about this, th- this, this issue uh, in your political piece? 
you, you kind of note that, um, you know, Democrats and Republicans, as you say, live in different spaces, really, on this, uh, on this issue. Well, I think we all need to realize that since the Supreme Court's decision in the so-called Heller case, which said that the Second Amendment protects uh, the right of citizens to own and uh, possess uh, handguns, that there really is no threat that the federal government is going to confiscate guns. At the same time, I think that advocates of gun regulation and gun control need to be very clear about that and to take every opportunity to say that gun regulation is not the beginning of a slippery slope to gun confiscation. So that's one side. And the other side, I think that gun owners have to open themselves up to the need to move beyond uh, just verbal support for gun regulation and to become willing to be active and seen to be active in advocating for gun regulation. Um, uh, the, uh, the aspect of guns as a way to sort of relate to others in a time when it's difficult to make connections with other people is another uh, point that you make uh, in your piece, uh, Austin. Um, uh, talk about that sort of um, uh, how, how we bridge that, that, that gap, how we bridge that distance between us. Well, I think the first thing that we need to realize is that um, gun ownership for for many people um, is kind of a way of life. Uh, About 40% of people who own guns in the United States today grew up in a household uh, where uh, their, their family owned guns. And about half of the people who own guns say that all or most of their friends also own guns. So we have to recognize that gun ownership for many, many people, uh, connects them uh, socially, uh, connects them into a world in which guns are are very important. And yet again, most of those people, they're advocates for the responsible use of guns. Now, I don't want that to be heard as my suggesting that there's nothing that we can or should do. Quite quite the contrary. I, I think it's very clear that among all the factors that make possible mass shootings in the United States, the widespread availability of guns in the United States is at the top of the list. 4.4 gun deaths per 100,000 is what happens in the United States. So for every 100,000 people, we have 4.4 gun deaths. In the United Kingdom, it's 0.06 gun deaths per 100,000 people. It's not that in the United States we have higher rates of mental illness or more violent video games. At the end of the day, what makes a difference is that guns are much more available here uh, and much less regulated than they are in places like the United Kingdom. Mm. Okay, Austin Sarrett, I know you have to run, but I really appreciate you being here with us on uh, Detroit Today. Thanks for, okay. for joining Thanks so the conversation. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Um, Andy Arena, I want to turn back to you now. I, I want to talk more about the president and what he said yesterday, but, but also, of course, the things that the president has said over and over since he uh, w- was elected. I mean, you were an FBI agent for a long time. Um, talk about the effect of rhetoric on this kind of white nationalist uh, terrorism that we're seeing. 
is it is it your opinion that uh, you know what the president's doing is stoking this kind of thing, and that it maybe is odd to have him come out and say what he did yesterday and not really kind of acknowledge that uh, he's playing a role there? Well, I, I think Stephen, I think words matter in this case. Uh, I think they they matter greatly, um, and it's not just it's not just Donald Trump. Uh, you know, I would. I would hope that the president of the United States would choose his words a little, a little better. Um, but you see, you see politicians from the other side uh, using um, using these instances in political uh, uh, for political purposes. Um, you know, we, we just got to get beyond that and, and try to come up with some real, real solutions. But you know, I think words can uh, and do embolden people. They embolden causes. Uh, and I think that there are people out there looking at this thinking that, uh, okay, maybe my uh, racial views uh, uh, aren't, uh, aren't so bad, aren't so out of the mainstream. Uh, and, and I think it, it, can, it can embolden them uh, to, 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 uh, to act uh, or, or to at least believe that uh, you know, what they believe is, uh, is not so wacky. Uh, and I think it would be helpful for listeners to understand how the FBI and other law enforcement deals with or responds to this kind of threat. I mean, uh, certainly there, uh, law enforcement is always busy trying to prevent terrorism, uh, international terrorism, but this is kind of a form of domestic terrorism, and I wonder if it's being approached the same way uh, in, uh, from a law enforcement perspective. Well, I think, the, Stephen, I think the emphasis is the same. I think that um, and so when I, te- I teach a terrorism class at Cooley Law School and I tell the students that, you know, you, you cannot miss the forest for the trees, that uh, you've got to be looking at all of the threats and treating them all uh, all the same. Um, and I think that's very, very true, uh, particularly with domestic terrorism. Now, you, we've seen a rise in, in these groups over the last few years. Um, there are more of them. They are more active. When it comes to investigating them, though, it is much different than an international group uh, because of the First Amendment. And so, um, you know, in this country, you can say damn near anything you want, Stephen. Uh, it is protected by, you know, as long as you act on it, it is protected by the First uh, First Amendment. And so the FBI has to be very, very careful uh, what they're looking at and the techniques that they're using. So, for instance, um, Unless they have reasonable suspicion that that uh, a crime is occurring, the FBI cannot be out there on fishing expeditions per the attorney general guidelines. And what I mean by that, they can't be out there looking at just open social media sources to see what people are talking about. Uh, that's prohibited. That's seen as free speech. And so, what we find with all well, what we find with most of these mass shooters is after the fact they were on social media. Uh, they were exposing these thoughts. They were uh, posting manifestos, and people say, "Well, why didn't the FBI, why didn't law enforcement see this?" They're they're not allowed under under federal law, under the under the Attorney General guidelines, and the interpretation of the First Amendment to be out there on the fishing expedition. So it makes it much more difficult for law enforcement to to kind of uh, root these these people out and stop them before they act. Yeah. Okay, uh, Andy Arena, Executive Director of the Detroit Crime Commission, former FBI Special Agent in Charge for the Detroit Division. Always great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. 
Oh, it's always my pleasure. Mm-hmm. All right. Up next, we're going to hear from you. Call us at 313-577-1019 and tell us what you're thinking about America's problem with mass shootings. Why is it happening? What's the solution? And how do we get people willing to do the things necessary to change this dynamic in our country? Stay with us on Detroit Today. talking about this weekend's mass shootings in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio, and what should be done to combat this kind of mass violence. We are seeing more and more of it. We are hearing more and more from people in positions of responsibility that seems to fuel the kind of hatred that leads to these kinds of incidents. So what should we be doing? What are we willing to do as a nation to stop this from happening or at least slow the pace? As always, 313-577-1019 is the number here on Detroit Today. Uh, that's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we will work you into the conversation. Let's start with Michael in downtown Detroit. Michael. Welcome to the show. Thanks for taking the call, Stephen. Uh-huh. Uh, <clears throat> you know, like this type of stuff makes me sick on so many levels. I don't know where to begin. <clears throat> but uh, the first thing that I would say is uh, people might want to refer to an uh, article in the Washington Post yesterday which detailed uh, uh, a chronology of these mass shootings. And, and, and they took the 1966 Texas Tower uh University of Texas shooting as a as a starting point, mm-hmm. and they they've accumulated the detailed the I think it's about twelve hundred mass shooting fatalities since then, and uh, you know like if we get the passion out of it and you know not try to weaponize it you know just look at it as an objective problem to solve like on a, almost like a scientific basis before nineteen sixty six like fifty years ago I'm old enough. You know, to know that this was not that pop, this was not that common, hmm. and obviously in the last fifty years, and especially since Columbine, it's been far more common. So, my first question would be, what has changed? Because guns were just as easy to get fifty years ago, if not easier. And uh, what has changed hmm. since then? And the two things that I look at, like there's just as many mental illness. I think mental illness is a red herring too, but. I would focus on two things, the media and social media. Uh, first of all, uh, CNN's been wall-to-wall text, uh, El Paso, Dayton for the last three days. Mm-hmm. Wall-to-wall. Uh, social media gives these people a chance to get into those dark places and talk about those dark things and become withdrawn. And, and uh, uh, I think if we focus on those two things, because... You know, something obviously changed. The switch has been flipped. And as far as the guns go, like there's, there's over 300 million guns out there. They're not coming back. Uh, yeah, you can ban the uh, high-capacity magazines, which I think makes sense, but the guns are out there. Uh, no. So, Michael, let me, ask you, let me ask you this question. Are you saying that you feel like media coverage 
of these incidents helps helps fuel them. And then, of course, social media. So what would you do about that? I mean, the media have a First Amendment right to uh, publish or broadcast what they think is news and what they think is important. Uh, I would argue that these are pretty important events as well and deserve lots of coverage. How would you how would you change that? Well, the tour bus that flipped over there and killed nine tourists, that was on the uh, nightly news. But it wasn't on for three days. And it was a tragedy, too. And, you know, like the, the 1,200 people that have been killed in the last 50 years, that's like 28 people a year. And uh, I know the media wants to make this as a crisis, but, you know, for 28 Americans to be killed a year by a mass shooting, whether it's a white supremacist or a a jihadist or whatever, uh, 28 deaths a year and 330 million people doesn't seem on an objective level as an actual crisis. I think there was five, there's 500 people killed in Chicago. Mm. I think the media focuses on when white people get killed mm. and, and, and milks that for ratings. Mm. But, uh, you know, like the, the crime in, in, in inner cities and the amount of Americans, your last guest said homicide, gun death is four per hundred thousand, mm. you know, Calculate that figure out based on the uh, number of mass shooting deaths, and it's probably, you know, almost zero out of 100,000. Yeah. Michael, I appreciate and, the call and the, and the comments. I'm not sure I agree with you about uh, how, how significant or insignificant this all is. I mean, I would say that uh, I, I think one of the points at which we turned a corner here was Sandy Hook, where you saw 27 little kids small children 20 children of the 20 of the 20 children of the 27 victims uh, slaughtered for no reason um, I think that is important I think that does call us to think differently about what is happening uh, with with mass violence in this country of course we didn't do very much after that and that's why we are where we are now uh, but again I appreciate your uh, your call and your thoughts uh, let's go next to Bob in Dearborn Bob welcome to Detroit today hello hey Bob yes hello thank you very much for taking my call uh-huh. I I follow this I follow you Stephen uh, for as best as I can, given my uh, my work, mm-hmm. this subject is very important. The uh, subject of gun control or the violence really caused by guns. I'm per, I am an individual who anti-violence. If I was the, if I had the uh, magic uh, wand, I would eliminate all defense, all defense departments across the world, mm-hmm. all all weapons across the world. Mm-hmm. However, weapons don't kill people. People people use the weapons to kill others mm-hmm. that is the that is what we need to focus on it is it is our thoughts it is the thinking it is the principle the conviction of the people that operate these guns in violence to kill to kill others and yeah. that is the root cause of the violence and this is where we need to eradicate that so bob and so how, bob how me... we're going to eradicate it you know, I'm open for uh, yeah, for Bob. Questions. Bob, let me ask you a question. Does it have to be an either or? In other words, uh, easy access to guns makes it uh, much simpler for people who are predisposed to do that kind of thing to commit that kind of violence. It makes it easier for them to do it. Ought we not think about access to guns alongside the motivations that make people kill? That is. That is. One 
way of looking at it. But if if someone wants to uh, to to kill, he will he or she will find a way mm-hmm. to find to 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 get guns to 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 act on his belief, his conviction, or whatever his his violent uh, uh, act. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bob, I appreciate. I would focus the... further. Uh-huh. I would focus further on reducing the hate. The hate rhetoric among us as a human, reducing reducing the fear from each other, have inner intercultural intercultural uh, uh, discussions so we can understand each other, we can live with, understand each other, promote secularism to the bone, mm. secularism to the bone, accepting others throughout the, the world. That is what I would do, and okay, that is Bob, what I am as a free thinker. Yeah. Promote that, Bob. I really appreciate the call and the thoughts, and I don't think anybody could argue uh, with any of what you're saying there. I mean, I think all of those things would help get us away from this cycle of uh, you know shootings, talking about the shootings, being upset about the shootings, and then nothing happening. Uh, let's go to Lindsay in Royal Oak. Lindsay, welcome to Detroit today. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I'm actually from Ohio. I grew up in Columbus and moved to Michigan a couple years ago. And my best friend was right next door to the bar um, during the Dayton shooting. She heard the gunshots and literally had to run out the back um, for her life and was trampled in a stampede of people trying to get out. So that's what I woke up to on Sunday morning. Um, And I've had very strong opinions on this topic for a long time. I'm 25. And so, unfortunately, mass shootings have been a defining factor in um, growing up here. Um, And then having it hit literally so close to home um, to where my best friend was at the scene of a mass shooting um, just reinforced the fact that we have got to take this seriously for me. Um, And I appreciate what all of the other callers have said. But time and time again, research and international data has shown that the only difference between what we're seeing here and what we see compared to other developed countries is the ease and access and number of guns available. We have no higher rates of mental illness. We have no higher rates of, um, you know, hatred of other people that we live in the same country as. We just have easier access to guns. And when people say that gun control doesn't work or stricter gun laws don't work, I love to bring up the example of Australia. And I know it's been brought up several times, but they had a mass shooting in 1996 and enacted some of the toughest gun safety regulations in the world. But yet they still have a huge sport and hunting culture. I think they're still in the top 10 importers of guns, but yet they've only had three mass shootings since then. And so to stop the shootings here and to keep our families and our friends safe, Literally, the only thing that will help is enacting tougher gun re- mm. regulations. So, so Lindsay, I want to go back to what your friend experienced uh, Sunday morning in in Dayton. Can you give us a sense of what she shared with you about uh, about what that was like, how she felt? Yeah. Um, so she is a teacher, and school starts this week. So she was out with a couple of her friends um, celebrating, and was at a bar in the Oregon district of Dayton and uh, there was a commotion and the gunman actually tried to enter her bar, but was stopped um, by the bouncers and then started open firing on the patio and at the bar right next door. Um, So she was, 
he tried to come in to the exact, exact place where she was. Um, and so when everyone was running out, she had to um, go out the back entrance with um, everyone that was in the bar that was trying to get away from the main street and the site of the shooting. And she had to hide behind someone's car until the police came around and said that it was safe to come out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm so grateful to the first responders. I know the Oregon District since Dayton has been um, a bit of a rough area. They always have police patrolling and they were able to stop the gunman very quickly. Um, and I'm so grateful for that response. But um, it, it was yeah. a horrible, so, horrible thing to wake up to on Sunday. So, Lindsay, tell me how you are reacting to this. Does this make you think differently about where you go and what you do? Does this make you maybe fearful of going to a nightclub or going out on uh, the town for, uh, you know, for a weekend night? Is it is it altering your view of how to live life? Um, yes, but that view has been altered. That view was altered years ago. Hmm. Um, I remember distinctly there was a uh, the March for Our Lives rally in Detroit last year, and a bunch of my friends wanted to go, and then someone said, well, what if a pro-gun person comes and shoots up the protest and none of us went because we were so scared and that fear i mean that fear has been with me for a while i used to be sitting in my college classroom and all of a sudden have a flash of what if someone walked in here and shot up the classroom or being in concert venues or anywhere um i don't even struggle with anxiety and that's an anxiety that i feel constantly. Um, I know people who do have anxiety and that just adds to it. Um, there are friends that I know who have stopped going out for public events because they don't necessarily feel safe. Um, and I think that when you look at all of the areas where we've seen mass shootings, like this happened in churches and in mosques and in synagogues and in Walmarts and in festivals and at concerts, like there's not a, and in schools, there's not, a place that hasn't been affected. Lindsay, I really appreciate uh, you calling and sharing both your friend's experience uh, and your own. Uh, that was uh, a really important add to the conversation here on Detroit Today. Thanks very much. Um, I want to read a quick quote from uh, Twitter. Uh, Intrusive on Twitter says, the only common sense solution to gun violence in America is to allow the CDC to research gun violence. Only solution that comes from thorough epidemiological research is going to make uh, a lasting difference. Uh, I I read that, uh, that offering on Twitter because I think one of the other dimensions of this conversation is how we deal with gun violence and whether we think of it as a criminal issue, whether we think of it as a policy issue, or whether we start to think about it as a public health issue. It is not uh, legal right now for the CDC. The CDC is not permitted to research gun violence. Uh, That's because uh, gun makers and gun advocates have prevented the CDC from doing that. Is it time to rethink that policy? Is it time to sort of recast this discussion away from uh, the politics of guns, the politics of gun laws, and maybe toward uh, the idea that this is a public health crisis or a public health threat? Food for thought for sure, in the conversation. Again, Lindsay and Royal Oak, thanks very much for your call and your thoughts. Uh, Let's go to Tom in northwest Detroit. Tom, welcome to Detroit today. 
what Steve, when they, meaning the congressmen, they didn't do anything to change these gun laws when all of those babies and their teachers down at Sandy Hook were killed. I knew they weren't going to do anything, and they're not going to do anything. And as I told your screener, uh, when I call in, and, you know, God forbid, and I don't wish it on nobody, but, when you know, chickens come home to roost. And, I mean, like I said, I don't wish death on nobody. But, you know, uh, and then even to the point of what you say has consequences. And, I mean, this nonsense that's going on, and it's been going on, but it's been more amplified. There's a voice that comes from right from the White House. I mean, when he was down there, when was it, last Thursday and wherever he was, and somebody said, shoot him, and he sat there and he laughed? I mean, come on, let's get real. He, he has ownership in, 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 terms of what these two, in terms of these two shootings. Hmm. And, I mean, I wish there was some kind of way that, you know, he could be censured in terms of what he says and even some of the speech writers and what they can put in there. But, I mean, he has not accepted any responsibility in this in terms of, yeah. you know, his hateful speech. Yeah. Tom, that is a really great point. I think it is one of the most important points here is what the president said and how it fits in the context of the other things he has said and the other things he has done as president. Uh, the word gaslight comes to mind uh, in, in really stark terms when you think about uh, all of that. And a uh, reminder to the listeners that tomorrow we're going to be joined by Sheikha Dalmia uh, of the Reason Foundation to talk about the ways in which authoritarian figures in history have used rhetoric to inspire private kinds of violence against uh, people that uh, they th thought should be disfavored. Uh, that should be a really interesting uh, conversation about the kinds of things that Donald Trump is saying and doing and how they fit into the context of other leaders uh, in our past. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to talk about the media's role in all of this. Uh, are we doing what we should be doing? Should we be doing more? Should we be maybe doing less? Uh, we'll also get to more of your calls. Greg in Detroit, Ron in Waterford, Bernadette in Redford, and John on the east side will get to you as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking this hour about the gun violence that we saw over the weekend in the mass shootings in El Paso, Texas, and Dayton, Ohio. Uh, we're talking about when America might decide that it needs to do something different to prevent these things from happening, or at least slow the pace of these things happening. Uh, I want to turn now to the subject of the media and how we cover these issues, whether we do it in uh, a way that makes it too much and too much attention to these things, maybe whether we should not, uh, whether we're not doing it enough, uh, whether we should be focusing uh, even more on the violence that claims lives uh, in our cities. And I'm joined now by somebody who's got a really particular experience with this. John Temple is the director of University of California at Berkeley's investigative 
reporting program. He was the editor, though, of the Rocky Mountain News at the time that the Columbine shootings happened 20 years ago. John Temple, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. So uh, tell us about that experience covering Columbine 20-some years ago. Well, it was a terrible experience. I mean, uh, it's it's a moment when you, as, as a newspaper person or as a journalist, you feel that you have to rise to the challenge. And, it, it, you know, part of the calling is to respond when your community is having its worst moment. And Columbine was clearly uh, the worst moment. And you also learn a lot of things that you otherwise wouldn't learn. And one of the things you learn is that you can't always predict um, what the reaction will be to what you do and also whether something um, makes sense, whether your judgment was a good call. And I'll give you one really clear example of that. On the day of Columbine, there was a we actually rented a helicopter and flew it over the school, and we had these very dramatic photos that were that appeared around the world of the crazy scene of people, children running from the school, and there was a body of a student on the pavement with a can of Dr. Pepper that had tipped over. He clearly had been shot, and he was lying on the pavement. And it was a very difficult decision whether to run that photo, and we did, and... Um, the mother was very upset because that's actually how she learned about the death. And we had a long talk about it um, because the authorities hadn't told her about that her son was dead yet, even when she saw the picture the next morning, which was just incredible and cruel. And she disagreed with me, but then she put that photo up my decision to run it. I didn't put it on the front page, but I did put it in the newspaper. And the next day, though, we sent a reporter to spend the day with her and she put it next to her heart and she was carrying that photo because that was the last moment of her son. And she told me like, she still thought I was wrong, but she understood why I did it. And she just thought I was wrong. About a year and a half later, I get a letter out of the blue telling me she thought about it a lot and told me that I had done the right thing. And she hopes that I would continue to have the courage to show the community what really happened and not to hide the truth. Mm. So I just thought that was really interesting from the perspective of you wouldn't expect a mother of a of a, a child who was killed in the shooting to come to that conclusion. But that sure. actually was the conclusion she came to, that you needed to show it in all its horror for yeah. the community to really understand what happened. Boy, that's a really that's a really tough thing, I think, to do or to think through as an as an editor. Uh, I had a conversation yesterday with someone about the fact that, um, you know, so little happened after uh, all of those children were killed uh, at Sandy Hook. And I, I yeah. surmised that one of the reasons might be that we didn't see photos of what happened inside that school. We did not see graphic photos of dead children killed by a gun. Now, I mean, you know, I can't imagine any editor making the decision to show that, but if you did, would you know? Would we be in a different place with this conversation? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a good question because I mean, clearly we have a Congress that can't act. I mean, it's completely dysfunctional, and and um, but would the American people have responded in, in a way to that to those kinds of photos? And a good example is the 
you know, child on the beach in the Mediterranean and also the father and child in the Rio Grande River, those photos galvanize public reaction and, and make people realize the horror, just as the photos of all those uh, men in, essentially in cages at the border and in really crowded conditions makes people realize there's something wrong here. We're not handling a situation properly. So, you know, honest photojournalism is one of the critical responses to these kinds of events. Hmm. So, so I want you to cast forward to today. Yeah. Um, things look really different in the media today than they did when you were editing the Rocky Mountain News. And they also look different in the culture in terms of how frequently we're seeing these kinds of things. Of yeah. course, you know, Columbine happened and it was it was so shocking in part because uh, it wasn't something that was happening pretty frequently. I mean, it was just it seemed right. to come out of nowhere. Now, uh, we don't go more than a few months, it seems, without these things. So are we better off for the round the clock kind of coverage that uh, media is in is indulged in uh, is indulging right now uh, for, to deal with the change in the culture which has produced more of these shootings or is the round the clock coverage one of the problems that might be leading to more of these things happening well i think there's a danger in the round the clock coverage if it doesn't go deep and it isn't incisive because um, it becomes numbing. There's a kind of a, I think I'm not alone in the feeling that I have to turn away because I cannot live in a world where, you know, people are being, you know, we have mass slaughter on a regular basis and I just find it so difficult to accept and I don't think I'm alone and so I think that journalists have to be, we as journalists have to be way more incisive and way more pointed. I, I think today there was a really interesting example of that. And uh, a business columnist in the New York Times wrote a, um, a letter to the uh, chief executive of Walmart. And I thought it was really interesting and hmm. sort of pointed to like the kinds of coverage journalists could do if they took the same approach to gun violence that they that we would have taken to the abolition of slavery or i certainly hope we would have taken towards the abolition of slavery or to the civil rights movement because we know that there were papers that denied the civil rights movement Mm -hmm. right there were journalists who didn't recognize it but if you took the attitude that we know that what is happening in our society is wrong and it's unacceptable and we're going to cover it from that perspective. I mean, that's not a bias. That is the reality. It is unacceptable. And so what he pointed out is, like, who's doing these business transactions? Who's making money? Let's really highlight where the system, like, who's profiting off the system because, and how it's working. And really, uh, I think, be more in your face. I mean, my, my point of view is... Uh, that uh, I think journalists have to take a position that this is a moral issue and that there are not two sides to this issue. Mm. There's no way we can say somebody going into a Walmart or, or, or walking into an entertainment district with, you know, huge um, magazines of ammunition and, you know, spray, killing people. There's not two sides to that particular issue. Sure. 
Um, and, and I think, I think going at it harder and less of the kind of, you know, well, what a great community and, you know, the, this and that. And I don't think that's going to do anything. It's just going to lead us to the next one where we'll, we'll all have a, another funeral. And hmm. I, I can't accept that anymore. So, so I also wonder whether uh, all these years later, and, and given the changes in media and in, in the culture, yeah. if you were the editor of uh, the newspaper in El Paso uh, yeah. over the weekend or in Dayton, uh, would you do things differently than you did uh, for Columbine? Uh, are, are there things that you did that you think now might not have been the best approach? Well, yeah, I think so. I think that I think one thing that's really tricky in these situations is the competitive race for um, little bits of information. You really get driven into that, uh, you know, and it's even more competitive in some ways because of the web today and national media dropping in. And so I think um, uh, maybe going a little slower. Um, uh, would be would be one thing. I think uh, being careful not to glorify the killer himself, um, to not put that person on a kind of like, you know, to in no way make that person a hero, and and that mm-hmm. happens implicitly by the size of the photo on the front page and by the the way it's treated on the web. So I think I think. That's another, I think um, we did then and I would do now is really um, highlighting the human cost. I, I can't tell you, you know, the hospitals are, one thing we always forget in these cases is it's terrible, for, obviously, for the families who've lost someone, but the wounded go through unbelievable sure. struggles yeah. in these things and they're sort of forgotten. And the actual walking wounded, there, you know, so the whole impact on a hospital and the wounded. Yeah. Now, there's healthcare laws that prevent too much coverage of people in hospitals, etc. But, but I think I would really try to show that there's this ongoing cost mm. that is is enormous for our society, and I would really try to get into that. And who's paying for it? Because. Right. Uh, you know, I think that's important, too. Okay. John Temple, director of UC Berkeley's investigative reporting program. It was really great to have you here for this conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. I love Detroit. Yeah, great. Thank you for having me on. Okay. Take okay. care. Bye. That's going to do it for me today. I'm going to be back tomorrow when we're going to be discussing the concept of otherization and talking about whether or not cities like Detroit and Minneapolis are actually part of the Midwest. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.